You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Always happy to talk with you, Rick. Jeremy, uh, you're recently quoted extensively in an article in Publishers Weekly talking about the appeal of apocalyptic science fiction, speculative fiction, urban fantasy, dark fantasy. Tell us a little bit uh, about um, some of the, these themes. It is it is very interesting that um, we're seeing new imprints, new books, a, a lot of action at a time when the publishing industry is, you know, singing the the blues, uh, science fiction seems to be doing particularly well. Yeah, it, it, it does seem to be, very specific subgenres seem to be doing um, very well compared to other popular forms of fiction. And you know, I hear a lot of editors or a lot of um, people talk about how escape is, when things are tough, it's, about, it's all about escapism. So, you know, wanting to, the urban fantasy is more appealing because of escapism or science fiction in general or fantasy in general. And I'm not sure if I buy the specifically escapism argument, um, if for no other reason that I think that science fiction um, can be and often is much more than just simple escapism. You know, it's a it's canary in the coal mine. It's reflective. It's you know, it can it can lead people along to you know to new and different conclusions, and so. I like that idea of the canary in the coal mine because I think that uh, uh, one of the things that to me about science fiction that that appeals to me at least is that um, it does allow us to uh, actually not so much escapism to to take out our fears, take out our our worries and our speculations and our, our and our hopes and examine them in a different context other than our own you know unique nailed down reality. Yeah, it certainly does. The the form itself is is right. You know, there's several different archetypes that kind of specifically allow that. The the if this goes on style of science fiction, where you know you take one element and you extrapolate it and you you know, take it to its logical extreme, or you a parallel bocce galupi. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or you know things like uh, Joe Haldeman's Forever War, mm-hmm. or you know, it it, it certainly does. Um, lend itself to that, even at the its most base of form or populist of forms, you know, there were expressions of the civil rights movement in, you know, in television entertainment in Star Trek when there were no other expressions of the civil rights movement. And, you know, one may argue that, you know... Fighting a- forever till time itself comes to a halt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one might ask if, you know, if there's causation or correlation, you know, was was Spock on the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, did that help the civil rights movement, or was that a reflection of the civil rights movement? And, you know, probably a little bit of both. But, you know, it, it certainly was a canary in the coal mine back when, you know, all of popular television was, was lily white. I think, too, that uh, one of the things that um, science fiction does really well is to um, help us look at very specific things in in very in deal with them in a way that's very specific so so that uh, the the pure allegorical as- aspect of science fiction functions much the same way that the greek myths f- functioned 
Absolutely. The you know the power of allegory and the power of of addressing very specific issues in science fiction, you know, has always been there. Um and but again it's you know, science fiction isn't always simple allegory. And you mentioned Paolo Bajigalupi and um his new novel Wind Up Girl. There are a lot of I think the best science fiction escapes from the I'll go to a more general you know kind of kind of idea, but I think that the best science fiction incorporates elements of allegory, but you know transcends the limitations of allegory. There's not always a one for one well, this is reflective of that i mean it's I always think back to my um my British lit survey course in college where um <laughs> the, the fairy queen is dissected and it's like oh well this is reflective of of protestants and this is the catholic and the you know and every line and every bit was strict allegory and once you had that decoder ring it lost its magic it lost its appeal i know that um this is something that i've heard chida mieville talk about quite a bit if you reduce fantasy fiction to simple allegory it becomes mundane it becomes you know recognizable and simplistic and you know, not as compelling. You know, it has to be, first and foremost, a good story. And I think that that's true of science fiction, and I think, you know, a lot of the science fiction form and a lot of our popular, you know, long-lasting science fiction pieces definitely have escaped that, that, that trap of simple allegory. You know, the Forever War isn't, isn't just a one-for-one one, um, take on the Vietnam War. You know, it was, it was more than that. And, and so... Yeah, I mean, science fiction is really powerful in that regard. Uh, and, and I think, too, that it must be acknowledged that science fiction is no longer a, a particularly young uh, art form. It, it's been around for a while, and the, the literature itself is is maturing. The people who are willing to use the tropes and uh, metaphors of science fiction are expanding to beyond a specific um, genre-oriented community. And... So its appeal, its greater popularity, its increasing popularity is somewhat natural as it becomes more a part of our lives. And as Kim Stanley Robinson said, said so long ago and so memorably, we're living in a bad science fiction novel. We, why not read a good one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that is so true and on so many different levels. Science fiction has um, you know, permeates our popular culture, permeates media movies, television, you know, comics, um, video games, they're all filled with science fictional elements. They're filled with plots and characters and settings and, and concepts that are taken directly from science fiction um, and directly from the written form of science fiction. And when you speak of, you know, that science fiction is, a, you know, an old genre, that's absolutely the case. I mean, gosh, the first, the first big revolution of science fiction was kind of the new wave movement, and that was... Uh, that came after Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, right? Right, right. You know, where, you know, there was like, science fiction struggled to develop itself, and then the new wave came along and appropriated other literary techniques and incorporated them into the tradition of science, of written science fiction. And, you know, there was an old guard that totally resented that, and, you know, the young whippersnapper kids who were like, no, but we're doing crazy stuff, and this is so much cooler than just keeping it simple. And, you know, there have been like several, if not as large revolutions, but there's been several more revolutions since then. And in fact, there's been a, you know, uh, I like to think of it as counter-revolution, 
led inside of, you know, the mainstream literary genre, you know, led by Michael Shaben, where, you know, he very proudly wears his science fiction and his genre roots on his sleeve. And, you know, kind of it's a, it's a counter-infection. It's the, it's the mirror image, what was happening in the new wave movement in the, uh, in the 60, you know, late 60s to middle 70s. So I think that science fiction is everywhere. And it's, it's excellent, and it's also kind of, kind of sad and frustrating, too. <laughs> yeah. I had a, um, actually, I was just up at uh, NorwestCon um, up in Seattle, and we were on a panel, um, Can Science Fiction Change the World? And, you know, in several very concrete ways, you know, we think it can. And in the more general, you know, we kind of came to the conclusion, here's some examples. And there's also the kind of more general statements that, like, well, we can help frame a dialogue, we can inspire people, we can scare people with dystopianism or, you know. But it's also very frustrating because, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned it several times, but I hold up the, the Forever Wars, that perfect example of, you know, a Vietnam vet coming back from Vietnam and writing a science fiction novel about the problems of a society that is forever committed to to war and conflict, and you know, and churning its you know its citizens into into monsters. And this novel was like held up, and it's still held up as like one of the giants of science fiction. It's an important novel for you know, not just science fiction, but everywhere. And yet, you know. America went through the last eight years. And so it's not always the case that the warnings are heated or that the warnings are incorporated or that the warnings, you know, have an impact, you know, just because somebody's out there, you know, saying that this could, you know, we have George Orwell back in 48, you know, <laughs> just predicted the last eight years. Well, he didn't predict it. I mean, he was talking about what was going on back in 48, back in post-war England and Soviet era and stuff like that. But those, those reflections, those, those elements that he was amplifying, you know, 50-odd years ago, are now so pronounced that it seems like prediction. They weren't as obvious back then. But now, you know, it's just been terrifying how many dystopic science fiction novels um, reflect our everyday reality, just like, you know, Stan Robinson was saying, you know, between Philip K. Dick and, you know, Joe Haldeman and George Orwell, you know, I mean, that, those, those three pretty much cover, you know, the last 10 years or so of, you know, American culture and, and American foreign policy. And so it's very frustrating, you know. I remember, actually, I brought this point up in the in the panel, and it's it's kind of a sore point for me, but I remember back in the summer of 2002 um, when the media and the, the administration was banging the drums for war and setting up this propaganda campaign. And, you know, being a science fiction reader, I was just like, there's propaganda. I know it when I see it because I'm a science fiction reader. Like, clearly, like, I learned this shit from reading Robert Heinlein. I, I, learned, this, I learned this stuff from reading Robert Heinlein a long time ago. And so I was very critical and very vocal back in the summer of 2002, and it was just really, really disheartening and depressing that, you know, one of the major movements of of science fiction um, back in that summer was uh, the petition drive to get Farscape back on the television. And I don't know that speaks to, you know, certainly elements of fandom can be very inward-looking, and, you know, and I think that 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 undermines or that 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 
prevents science fiction from, you know, achieving a full potential when it becomes completely inward-looking. And I think that example of, like, you know, in the context of, you know, right after September 11th and this massive political campaign, you know, a lot of science fiction was focused on, you know, trying to save a mediocre television show. And I just, you know, I resented it at the time, and, um, you know, I, I, clearly I still kind of resent it. Well, I think, too, that what's really happening, too, is that science fiction is losing that that tag, and so it's becoming more literary fiction. And what I'm thinking of is uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, where which is clearly a science fiction novel and uses all the tropes of science fiction to explore, you know, the... Um, aspects of, of both the present and the future, and, and it's got a proud literary hair too. The air to uh, devil shoots on the beach, and, and this kind of uh, uh, as science fiction that matures, it, it is growing. I think uh, I think more a more gaining a more powerful voice within the the literary community and within I think uh, you know the the world conversation as it were. I'm. Think of all the uh, novels now that are coming out of about global warming. There's a brand new one by Stephen Baxter called Flood that looks quite gripping, really terrorizing, and it just you know it's absolutely topical. <laughs> right. I mean that's absolutely the case. You you touch on a couple different things there, but yeah, I think Cormac McCarthy's The Road is is another really good example of that counter revolution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, you know the the literary mainstream is is quite happily incorporating you know, concepts and ideas and techniques and, you know, themes and forms that have been the bread and butter of science fiction for a long time. Um, Philip Roth's The Plot Against America was another one. Um, and so, you know, I think there is kind of a weird, wavy line that you can draw between, say, Kurt Vonnegut to um, um, the author of The Handmaiden's Tale to Philip Margaret Roth, Atwood. Margaret Atwood, to Philip Roth, to, you know, um, to Cormac McCarthy. I mean, these are all part of a continuum, and their reactions and acknowledgments or lack of acknowledgments um, of science fiction is, I, I think, very revealing of, of the eras of the writers. and of They're just very reflective of, of the literary mainstream and how open it is. You know, Kurt Vonnegut could not have a career as a literary writer if he let people associate him with science fiction, and so he had to so vigorously deny it, and you know, and it's the opposite of uh, Michael Shaben. Now it's no longer, you know, that that dirty secret that he's using science fictional concepts, and you know, you can win a Pulitzer by writing an apocalyptic novel. So that's that's pretty that's pretty amazing, and and that leads right into the idea that. Well, you know that 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 rise of of apocalypse and of dystopia um, in the in the broader popular culture. Um, I, I've been totally blown away by how how much you know. I mean, global warming is the new nuclear war. I mean, you know, back in the '80s, you know, you can trip over your you know over the bookstore shelves without finding a you know a, a post nuclear you know, dystopia or Armageddon or, or whatever. Or just adventure stories, too. Or there are lots of There are yeah. lots of uh, kind of uh, cheesy, you know, heroes in the wasteland kind of stuff coming out. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because it was, it was the, 
the apocalypse du jour. It was the one. It was the apocalypse <laughs> that was recognizable by the mainstream audience. And so, if you said an adventure story, or you know, it was essentially warmed over westerns or whatever, mm-hmm. in this you know post nuclear war setting, it 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 was recognizable. And I mean, you talk about global warming novels being mainstream now. I remember reading an analog column. Um, back in the in 1983, it was either 82 or 83, about global warming, about the hole in the ozone layer in Antarctica, and about gl- climate change. And you know, I remember being very you know concerned and upset, and like, holy, this is like big deal. This is important stuff. And you know, it took a lot longer for the concerns of that column to reach the mainstream. You know, it took. Basically, you know, well, it took the world had to actually resemble, become what it, almost what what uh, the column predicted. Well, and the, the the column wasn't predicting anything. The column was pointing out absolute hard facts on the ground. The ozone layer above Antarctica was gone. Ice was ice was melting. You know, and and I don't even think it's a matter of like when people are told that the sky is falling, they don't want to believe it. And so it took a long time for an acknowledgement that, you know, our lifestyles may be detrimental. It's hard for somebody to, you know, or societies, when you look at them in large, for them to take responsibility for for actions that don't have anything negative associated with them. And, you know, massive emissions of greenhouse gases and climate change, you know, that, that took place on a, on a long scale, on a long timeline. You know, I mean, frankly, that's why I think science fiction is such a good good way to look at it because science fiction takes place on a long timeline. Science fiction novels and stories are all about long timelines and so and most of popular culture, you know, and even mainstream literature is on a very short timeline. You know, it's certainly not literary novels don't do a very good job, I think, of of internalizing and grappling with, you know, problems that are gonna unfold over, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 years. And, you know, I mean, it, it was really interesting to watch Kim Stanley Robinson try and do, try and fuse a mainstream thriller with a science fiction novel. You know, his his Global Warming trilogy was mm-hmm. was absolutely a fascinating read to me, um, you know, coming from the science fiction end of things. And, and I think it's a really interesting counterpoint to when Greg Bear was writing, you know, Darwin's Radio, Darwin's Darwin's Children and stuff, you know, he was writing ostensibly, you know, a thriller, mm-hmm. you know, a techno-thriller. And so it was an interest. it was interesting to see, you know, traditional science fiction writers infecting, you know, that genre and w- watching how they do it. Um, and so, yeah, well, clearly I think a bit too much about science fiction, but, you know, these things always fascinate me. Well, I think, too, one of the, the reasons I think why we become interested in dystopian novels is because they reflect our own world. It's not like we're looking to escape from our own world. We're looking at something that looks like the the way our world looks. And for the past eight years, and, and maybe heading up ahead, we're we got ourselves a pretty guy, good dystopia happening here. So. Absolutely. Well, and I think I think you know one of the appeals of dystopian fiction and apocalyptic fiction is not necessarily, you know. It's it's the opposite of escapism of urban fantasy. It presents problems that you know 
oftentimes can be solved. Like apocalypse, I think there's a core appeal of apocalypse fiction where, you know, a, a protagonist can grapple with issues, and even though all of society's, you know, institutions are crumbling and falling down, you know, the protagonist is still able to get over. He's still able to, you know, affect change, to have agency in his life. And, you know, and so that's a very, you know, compelling read for somebody who's just lost their, you know, lost their house or maybe, you know, facing foreclosure or lost their job or doesn't have much agency in their life, you know, reading about somebody who has it much worse and is still able to affect change and have agency. That's a really compelling read. And it's not simple escapism. It's it's inspiration. It's, you know, it's it's saying that no matter how hard things get, you still can overcome. And that's, you know, I think that is an important lesson. And, you know, dystopian fiction has a similar um, kind of kind of vibe. It's like no, ba- no matter how much, how bad things are today, you know, there is still value in trying to stop this, you know, bring it to a halt and turn things around or at least not let them get any worse. Because if we don't let things, if we do continue to let things get worse, they can be much worse. And so, you know, even, you know, especially, you know, when things are bad, that's, it's, it's important, you know, science fiction and dystopian literature can help people step aside from that easy nihilism Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. like, well, the earth is doomed anyway. Because there was a lot of that. I remember growing up in the 80s, and there was a very nihilistic attitude amongst, you know, kids in the early 80s of like, you know, growing up under the threat of nuclear war, there was a very, very real belief that the, the world would not be there in 40 years. It seemed, and it was indeed as as the revelations of recent of what happened around uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were we were a lot closer than anybody really expected. Right, and there were there were several really really very narrow incidences. There was a there was a a, a, Rus, a Russian army officer who was given the command to launch missiles, and he didn't because he thought it was a software glitch, you know. And they court-martialed and threw him in the gulag, but he prevented a nuclear exchange. And that was just a random, like, software glitch, and it's not very well known. So, like, the world was really close, and it wasn't like, oh, well, that's just people being nihilistic. It's like, if you were there, and if, or if you lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, you have an understanding of, like, how close it was, and that um, that oppressive malaise of, like, well, the future isn't viable because it's all going to be, you know, it's, there's an easy, it's easy to slip into a nihilism of like, why bother? Mm -hmm. No matter what I do, it's not going to matter. And, you know, when people are talking about this, you know, global warming and the, the end of, you know, peak oil and the way we are, it's easy to fall into a simple, simple nihilism and not look for answers and not look for, you know, solutions and not look for ways to prevent things from getting worse. And and that's one of the things that I think is is absolutely true, what you're saying there, is that science fiction, especially in some of the more positive stuff, points out that there are always like really unexpected discoveries that can transform society within a few years, for example, you know, and it wasn't even really a discovery, it was just the invention and integration of the internet has completely transformed the the globe from the way it was back in the early 80s to now. I mean, it's a, we live in a very different world, largely because somebody figured out how to put together disparate pieces of a technology that already existed. 
and, and those kind of transformations, and that's what science fiction, I think, often does, it points out that these kind of transformations are always imminent. They're possible. They don't even necessarily involve new technology, just com- intuitively good combinations of old technology. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that does, that is so reflective in science fiction of, you know, it's like, the changes when they happen happen very quickly, and the internet is a perfect example of that. And you know, science fiction oftentimes is is very concerned with societies in flux, societies in change. And if science fiction can change the world, then uh, Neuromancer did a damn good job, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, frankly, you know, you can look at you know the astounding magazines of the you know 30s and 40s of an inspiring generation to grow up and be rocket scientists. Or you can look at, you know, William Gibson and Neuromancer and a lot of the cyberpunk writers, you know, inspiring generations of computer scientists to go out and create cyberspace. Um, yeah, it, it does have an effect. It's, it is one of the cornerstones of how we imagine things and, you know, how we imagine society, how it, how it can be. Because it's not just about, about the technology. There are technology writers. There are, there's popular mechanics. There's people who you know, are futurists who look at technology and predict things. But, you know, science fiction has more a more holistic view, and it's about how that technology changes society in unfamiliar ways. Just the development of the cell phone yes. completely altered everything. And not just here in the first world, but, like, if you look at the ways that cell phones in the third world are used and deployed and allow entire communities to be connected you know, one cell phone for a village, and it's all time-shared and paid for, and suddenly sick children can get, you know, antibiotics because that village out in the middle of Africa that had none can call a city and get something brought in. It's, it's completely altered life across the planet, and that's just, you know, something that we carry around in a hip pocket and take for granted. But, you know, science fiction looks at those technologies and those ideas and and says well how is that going to fundamentally alter things and i guess that's what bugs me about bad science fiction like when i see science fiction in popular culture and stuff it's the it's the old gene roddenberry transporter thing it's like well if they have transporters why do they need a shuttle well they had transporters because it was cheaper to produce a television show where they could beam around than it was to actually have a shuttle fly down so they the lack of extrapolation, the lack of rigor in, you know, in technological changes and their impact on society or, you know, simple plot <laughs> in some cases bugs me. As a science fiction reader, it just really, you know, sticks in my craw. But we always remember the words, the title of a famous Thomas Dish book, The Dreams Our Stuff Is Made Of. Exactly. Or How Science Fiction Conquered the World. Hmm. That's it. (laughs) I've been speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. My pleasure. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.